The Lombok Crusade presents to another episode of Fan Film Fridays. As usual, I'm your host, Clinton Robison, coming to you more or less alive and kicking from the basement at Longbox Crusade Network HQ. As you may or may not know, I'm essentially stuck down here while the Longbox Crusaders are out having adventures. But don't worry, I've been sending out coded messages to try and get some help, and I've always got online fan films to keep me company. Speaking of those coded messages, uh... I I wonder if they've had any chance to make it out to space yet. I mean, it'd be funny to make contact with alien life while stuck in a basement, right? (laughs) Hailing frequencies open, right? Well, I got the next best thing to hailing frequencies open. I've got Gene Hendricks. Gene, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. And uh, if you wanted the communications officer, I could have brought her along. (laughs) Well, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> no, <clears throat> she's a little robotic, anyway. Yeah, uh, and plus, you know, this basement does get kind of crowded. But, mm. God. Yeah, I mean, how many long boxes do these people have, anyway? I don't know, but I'm I'm just wondering, like, when I'm going to stumble upon a secret stash of Sky Strikers. <laughs> well, that'll be one way to to get Jason down here, anyway. <laughs> oh. All right, so Gene, I think uh, everybody should already know, you know, at least what my experience with fan films is. But uh, do you have any experience with them? Just a little bit, just a little bit. I mean, I I watched fan films um, way back in college. You know, uh, Troops being the the primary one, and uh, you know, uh, Batman Dead End was another one that was making the rounds back in the day. But then uh, there was this little thing that happened to me in the early two thousands. Uh, joined uh, my wife and I joined a Star Trek fan club, the USS Justice, and that was think one thing led to another, and we ended up making three almost four, (laughs) of our own Star Trek episodes. And that's just what we're going to look at today. This episode, we're going to look at a collection of fan films, collectively known as Star Trek Tales of the Seventh Fleet. The episodes were posted online from 2004 to about 2006, and the series is about all the ships of the Seventh Fleet, or so it was intended. (laughs) Supposedly. Yes. They ended up focusing on the USS Justice. A Saladin-class, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Saladin-class destroyer, and it's set during the original series movie area. Area. Era! (laughs) Uh, Specifically within just a little bit after uh, Star Trek VI, correct? Yeah, actually, it's set pretty much immediately, at least uh, the first episode, is almost immediately after the first part of Star Trek Generations. Uh, with the Enterprise B, oh. and uh, you know that because there's one line in there when they said um, Enigma says that oh you know Starfleet sending a ship to uh, help us out and the uh, M- Commander Stein says oh I bet they'll be here on Tuesday. <laughs> I didn't catch that. I did notice when they said the Kittimer Accords. Ah, God, I cannot talk this. I did notice when they said the Kittimer Accords were in effect, so that helped date it. Yeah, yeah, it's it, actually, it's, the whole part of what we're trying to do was bridge the gap between the movie era 
of the original series and next gen. There's some technology that's changing over. Like you'll notice that the, uh, the cast is in the movie era uniforms, but if we need to communicate on board the ship, we tap our comm badges. I was curious why that came up. Yeah, it, but it also only works on the ship. <laughs> so it's it's like the first generation of that. You can only do it when you're surrounded by the actual support network, but you still need a handheld communicator if you're off the ship. Kind of like how in first season TNG they you know act like replicators are still a fairly new idea, and the holodeck is so brand new it pretty much came out last week. Right. Yeah. So we're. It, there has to be a rollout for this stuff, so we were trying to work some of that in. Well, the main characters of this production are the captain. That's all we know him as, because his mm-hmm. name is withheld for religious reasons. First officer, Commander Carl... Is it Stoffels? Stoffels. Stoffels. Yeah. Or as the uh, the crew tend to call him, Stifles. <laughs> <laughs> a certain chief engineer, Lieutenant Commander Robert Lupia... Boy, does that guy have to go on a diet. <laughs> I thought it was just a prerequisite for chief engineers. <laughs> yeah. you know, Jordy's the, the... God, what's the word I'm looking for? Exception. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, folks. I've been up all night. <laughs> uh, well, we actually got some criticism about that. Um, because, you know, people review these things just because they can. And mm-hmm. someone said, you know, you shouldn't have a fat chief engineer making food jokes. <laughs> Which I did in two, um, well, it wasn't me, it was between me and Michelle. Uh, there were two food jokes in two of the episodes, so. I thought they were funny. I, I enjoyed them. We thought that we were amused by them when we were filming, so it worked. <laughs> we also have Navigator, Commander David Stein, Dr. Valerie Lupia, and Communications Officer Enigma, who I will say I pegged slightly wrong at first. Oh, really? Yeah. The the big number four around her neck should have clued me in, but honestly, I took her to be more um, based off number one from uh, the cage. Oh, okay. All right. I can see where that, that would come in. Yeah, but she is actually uh, an android from iMud. And that was, that's, that one has a multiple, multiple layer joke to it just because her name is Enigma, and she has the, the necklace that you would assume – but the necklace has the number four on it, and the Enigma machine, the Enigma machine had four wheels. <laughs> oh my gosh! We this think is, about this stuff way too yeah. much. <laughs> this is on a, a level far beyond me, folks. <laughs> I am a freaking casual compared to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also you'll note Enigma is enlisted. She's wearing the enlisted person's jumpsuit from the Wrath of Khan. That's because Data is the first android officer in Starfleet. So she is a member of Starfleet, but she's not an officer, therefore it doesn't contradict. Here, people. <laughs> All right, well, as we've already jumped into things, I still will just say to please see the show notes for links to the episodes. It'll take you roughly between an hour and an hour and a half to watch all three. But if you're into Star Trek, you know, you'll know this is perfectly fine running time. It's not like watching, you know, the motion picture. Gosh, who does that? Watch it. (laughs) (laughs) And anyone who gets to the end of Upgrade will know how much I love the motion picture. (laughs) (laughs) And normally I'd say we delve deeply into the plots, and we probably will. But, you know, watching them ahead of time will help you avoid any spoilers that we haven't already discussed. Mm. Plus, it's just more fun and... You know, if we discuss them after you've watched the film, maybe you'll enjoy this episode more. But to briefly tell you about the episodes and the plots, here's your chance to pause and go watch. Okay. The first episode, Return to Doomsday, 
is set 33 years after the destruction of the USS Constellation. James T. Kirk stopped a planet-devouring machine and placed a warning buoy near the inactive machine. The USS Justice, on routine patrol, discovers the USS Enterprise's buoy has been destroyed and that the most powerful weapon in the universe is once again fully functional. The next episode called Upgrade, the USS Justice is undergoing a refit, but a saboteur is on the loose. A mysterious disease has been released and has already claimed one important person's life. The crew is in serious danger. Can the captain, the commander, and Dr. Lupia find a cure in time to save the Justice and Starbase 24 from infection? And then finally, we have a touch of home. Time has come in the Ephrosian? Ephrosian. Ephrosian. The, the same same race as the uh, president of the Federation Star Trek VI, Ephrosian. <laughs> I noticed the similarity, but man, I, I had never actually seen the the uh, race spelled out. <laughs> anyway. It's time come to that time in the captain's life that he must reach a frozen planet to perform a sacred ritual. If he'd been in Star Wars, he could have just... Never mind, we're not getting that. <laughs> Unbeknownst to the crew, the planet is more than just a ball of ice in Klingon space. But I'm hardly the best person to tell you about all this stuff. <laughs> Instead, I'm getting the scoop from the chief engineer himself. So, Gene, what is exactly the history of this project? How did it come about? You know, everybody just spitballing stuff one night? Saying, hey, well, you know, what would be fun? Or It it actually it grew out because, like I said, we were all part of the fan club. And uh, the USS Justice is a part of Starfleet International, which is, the I think, the biggest Star Trek fan organization out there. So each chapter organization is a ship, and we were the USS Justice. And part of what we, we would do is we just do – you know, fun things, uh, one of them being we played the Star Trek role-playing game. I believe this was the Decipher version of it. So we were playing around, and I was playing the chief engineer. Michelle was playing the doctor. Dan Swift was playing the uh, the science officer, but he was also the game master, and so on and so forth. So at one point, Ed Tunis, who was the captain of the ship when we joined – uh, he got a video camera that could chroma key in camera. And what chroma keying is, is blue screen or green screen. So we, he decided, hey, why don't we play around with this, see what we can do. And from that, it grew into, hey, you know, we can do this. One, one of the first things we did as a test was we painted uh, some pieces of plywood blue put them in Danny's garage. He had a one-car garage in a townhouse at the time. And we set the camera, and Danny and I were talking, and Ed had loaded in a hallway. So we were just playing around. Okay, well, what if I walk towards the camera, and how is that? Oh, that looks great. You know, we can actually get some depth of field that way. So we're playing around with it and said, well, why don't we just make a video? You know, it can be used... You know, it, it'll be fun for us as a creative exercise, but it can also be used as a promotional tool for the chapter. We can say, hey, you know, this is one of the things we do or, hey, you know, just put it out online and see, you know, what interest we can garner from it. And it actually, it got us into a couple conventions uh, as media presenters. So it, it these worked out, you know, for everyone's benefit, really. But. What we did is we decided, okay, well, listen, there are a couple rules we have to have here. One of them being no alternate universes or time travel, because that's that at the time we decided that was a crux, a crutch that a lot of the writing was using. Two, we have to have our own original characters. Anyone can do, oh, I'm going to be the next Kirk or I'm going to do Spock or whatever. We had to have our own characters, and they had to have original names and backgrounds and everything. So we said, well, we have these character sheets from the role-playing game. Let's use those as a basis. And that's how we ended up with uh, the different characters that we, we played. And it also helped in that none of them was overpowered because the way the game worked is you had to buy everything. So if I wanted to be a very good engineer, I had to get some disadvantages to it, like – being a racist towards Klingons, which is you'll see in in the videos that that comes through quite often. 
And we also had to not have any direct connection to the Enterprise. This is not saying that other groups that did that were bad for it. It's just we wanted to be off on our own. We wanted wanted to have this little one-nacelle destroyer out, usually tackling stuff that they shouldn't be able to handle. And we didn't want to have, you know, back in my day, uh, Scotty would do this. No. (laughs) (laughs) We, We had to be off doing it ourselves. So all that came together, and then uh, Ed got the idea of, you know, watching all the original series episodes, as all of us had done multiple times, the end of the Doomsday Machine, they didn't actually destroy it. They just turned it off. And that's that's why there's one line in there uh, by Stoffels that says, no, 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 it wasn't destroyed, it was rendered inert. Well, something like that, it's got to be self-repairing. So what happens if... We run across it, <laughs> and no one else is in the area, because Starfleet never has more than one ship within a certain amount of time away, so we have to tackle it, and what can we do with that? And that's, we sat down for Return to Doomsday, I think we wrote in a weekend. It was uh, Ed and I sitting down with uh, his wife, Trish, who plays Enigma, Danny and Michelle, and we were all just, uh, like you said, we were spitballing ideas. Okay, well, what if we do this? Oh, you know, what about a solar flare? And, you know, well, how does this, you know, how does my character fit into it? Well, we can do this subplot and all this. So that that's that's also why it's only, I think, what, 17 minutes or yeah, whatever? About that. It, it's the shortest episode because we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> so we didn't know how long to make these things. And none of us are were actors. None of us had done. I mean, the, the closest I came to acting was a sixth grade play. <laughs> uh, so we, we all had to figure out, you know, okay, how do we, because return to doomsday, we were doing the chroma key in the camera, like I said, which is very limiting uh, because you can't do anything else with it. It has to be exactly as it is. And you have to make sure everything is lined up perfectly or it won't work. Whereas, in upgrade in a touch of home, we filmed in front of a blue screen and then keyed everything out in what was the name of the program? Uh, after effects. And that's why you're able to actually get layers on it. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but in upgrade there's, uh, it's subtle, but the scene in the brig, Danny or Stoffels is standing in the cell. With, and the three of them are there, and his arm is cut off because he's behind the wall. Well, that wall wasn't there. That's something that we layered in after the fact. Or the bridge shot in that is actually multiple layers, and same in uh, A Touch of Home, where we we purposely filmed things at medium distance and far distance so that we could just put it in. Like in on the bridge in A Touch of Home, there's always someone walking by in the background. We were filming in a room that was maybe 20 feet deep. So you could not have someone back there because that's where the blue screen was. And then you had the lights in front of that and you couldn't. So we <laughs> we were actually at that point, we were in uh, someone's house. So for those long shots, the camera was actually outside filming into, you know, through a sliding glass door to those people walking. So you get the full body shot but I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, I told you I talk about this quite a bit. <laughs> That's but uh, so with with Return to Doomsday, we just brought in you know all the people that were in the club to do different things and keying in the camera, just seeing how it worked. And then Danny is the one who did all of the special effects. He, he had a 3D program that he could render the justice, the doomsday machine, the sun, whatever. And he's the one that actually came up with the background of all the, the shots in there. So he, he was just a whiz at doing all that stuff. And he's the one that did all the, uh, the visual effects for all of them. He, even in a touch of home, that planet that we beamed down to, um, to Deb, the exteriors on that he made, those mountains and everything he, he did, he did that in the computer. And <laughs> when he, he basically gave me a clip of it, which was X length that I would just chop up and use 
oh, we're on the planet. Okay, throw that little bit in. Fine. Now we go to what we're doing. So it was just an experiment, and want, we wanted to see what we could do, and we all had a lot of fun doing it. So we said, hey, let's do it again. <laughs> and it seemed like whoever we showed it to liked it. Uh, like I said, there were some people that were a little critical of it, but we we weren't doing it to get into like filmmaking or anything like that. We were doing it to promote the club. So if we couldn't act, it really didn't matter. It was just, hey, you know, we do this fun thing. Wouldn't you like to do this? So well, apparently, yeah. it proved popular enough, according to uh, the website. The second episode crashed the servers within 24 hours of being first uploaded. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was that was interesting because we we didn't know it was that popular, but we we obviously found out. But uh, upgrade actually what what happened with that one? The storyline of that was Danny had come across a map for the uh, Star Trek Voyager game Elite Force that was the Excelsior. And had corridors and the bridge and the science lab and engineering and everything. And he was able to go into that map and replace all the graphics that w- that showed the Excelsior with the Justice. So that was a heck of a lot easier for us to do because we just go into Elite Force and say, okay, I want this camera angle. Take a screenshot. Because <laughs> <laughs> you turned the HUD off and everything in the game. So we had to say, okay, well, we had this background in Return of Doomsday, and now we're going to have this background. What better way to explain that than the ship is going through a refit? So if you're going through a refit, you kind of have to be stationary. (laughs) So it had to be some type of other plot, and that's where the murder mystery thing came in, which also allowed us to introduce a couple more characters, uh, specifically Chief Pima and Lieutenant Williams. Uh, Chief Pima being the uh, he that character was the highest non-commissioned officer on the ship, but he was also he worked in engineering. So he was like Lupia's right hand man and they would bounce things off of each other and and everything. And then Lieutenant Williams and this, ladies and gentlemen, is why you should have gone and watched the episodes first, because I'm about to drop a huge spoiler on you. Upgrade, the whole point of it was that there was this weaponized virus released. And in that episode, we didn't find out who who did it. And the beginning of A Touch of Home, the new security chief says, hey, you know, well, there's a report. We don't see the security chief yet. Uh, there's a report that, n- you know, no, no leads went anywhere. But there's a bit of Romulan text on uh, a justice screen. And you've see some suspicious stuff. Well, Lieutenant Williams played by uh, Tim Longo. Great guy. Uh, was a surgically altered Romulan who was a spy trying to knock Starbase 24 and its associated fleet offline. So that's why he acts so weird, especially in a touch of home that he, because he is, Oh no, 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 you're not seeing anything. It's a sensor ghost. No, I, there are no cloaked ships around here. No, no, no. Pay no attention to that readout. <laughs> and that was supposed that was going to be revealed later on. And the whole reason for that is the location of Starbase 24 is in what's known as the triangle. And this is a, a term from the old uh, FASA role playing game. The triangle is where the United Federation of Planets, the Romulan Empire, and the Klingon Empire, all their borders all meet. So it's this area of space that is somewhat contested. But if the Romulans knock out Starbase 24, that means that they have a much easier way of getting not only into the Federation, but into the Klingon Empire. And you see some of that in A Touch of Home, because there's a Romulan base on the planet, which that, w- that was a fun a fun thing to do with the, uh, the Romulans, because you'll note that the Romulans and the Orions, unless they are in the presence of humans, speak their own language. They'll speak English. And we subtitled it because they wouldn't speak English among themselves. In fact, the Romulan commander played by Joe Block, a real, real good friend of mine. He forces the Orion captain 
played by Stephen Bonacore, to speak Romulan to him, not Orion, because they're Romulans. They're kind of, you know, uppity like that. They're, no, 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 you will speak our language. <laughs> so it's, uh, these are these are all the things that we were thinking of when we were writing all this, and we've got other stories that we were going to tell, but there's a, you know, life got in the way. <laughs> Uh, Ed and Trish moved to Louisiana and so they weren't going to be involved. And the next episode that was supposed to come out, which we did film all of it was called street fight and that the justice had a new captain and it wasn't Stoffels. It wasn't Lupia. It was a brand new character and he was put in by Admiral Voss. Now Admiral Voss played by David Frick was the only one of us who had actual acting experience. <laughs> and you can tell because he is excellent. Uh, he and his wife, Maria, they actually, they do a play with their church every Christmas. And it runs for like three weeks or something. So they know what they're doing on stage and they can remember their lines. <laughs> unlike the rest of us. So Voss has this uh, antagonistic relationship because he doesn't, he doesn't like the justice in general because it's this little uh, peon of a ship that seems to just get him in trouble a lot. And he really hates Lupia because, and there's a lot of mentions of the Rittenhouse incident. Well, the, the backstory that I had come up with is, okay, why, why is this guy a Lieutenant commander? Why isn't he advanced anymore? Well, he used to be a commander. He used to be in charge of the engineering deck on the Rittenhouse. There was a warp core breach where he disobeyed an order from Commodore Voss at the time, which saved the ship but killed a number of crewmen. And one of those crewmen was Voss's kid. So Voss has it out for him and takes great pleasure <laughs> in sticking it to Lupia whenever possible. So it's there's this huge backstory that we had worked up. So that you get the ideas of, okay, these people had lives before this show. And we're trying to act consistently throughout of, okay, this is, I'm doing this because in my background it has this. Like the reason that Lupia is racist towards Klingons, he grew up on Sherman's planet. <laughs> nice. So he had to have a reason, you know, there's, it's not just, oh, they're the, the enemy. It's no, these are the people fighting for the resources. So, and he, believe it or not, he's able to speak Klingon and use their bladed weapons because he taught himself how to do it with the run-ins with the different settlers. It, it never shows up on screen except for one mention in A Touch of Home where he says one time back home, but he doesn't say where back home is. But it's something that we knew when writing everything. Okay, well... Stein is prejudiced towards Klingons because he's been Starfleet so long that they've always been the enemy. They can't be trusted, etc. Lupia has a specific reason. He's not prejudiced towards him. He is flat out racist. Klingons cannot be trusted. The Klingons always lie. They always cheat. They always steal. So eventually there was going to be an incident in one of the shows where they – Lupia would have to work with a Klingon and we hadn't figured out, is he going to change or is it going to reinforce? But that was, you know, so far down the road that it just, it didn't even get the treatment form. It's just an idea that we had out there. Well, gosh, you've covered most all of my leads already. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kind of glossed over the costumes though. Um, huh. Like I, I know it's usually part of a whole Star Trek club to make sure and have your costumes, Starfleet uniforms, etc. Were you all each responsible for your own costume, or did you kind of like outsource that to just somebody who had good sewing skills? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it it depended, really. Uh, most of the costumes you see came from a company called Warp One, and they were made of the like a nylon, I want to say, uh, fairly light material, but you still had to wear a turtleneck under it. So under the lights and everything filming, it was damn hot, which is part <laughs> of the reason I was in the engineer vest as much as possible. Uh, but my uniform, I actually got off of eBay because warp one didn't go up big enough for me. So I had to get a, a special uniform. 
uh, Stein's uniform was actually custom made for him by a lady named Dama Whitlark, who you see in A Touch of Home briefly walking down a corridor, or not, um, you see in Return to Doomsday briefly walking down a corridor in the same uniform, just with different rank. And that that's why all of us, the shoulder strap, except for Stein, they were all white, because that's what you could buy. You could buy white. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we glossed over it by saying, okay, well, everyone wearing these is a department head, so technically they're in command. And then the undershirt was the department color. Now, those undershirts, we, we actually bought turtlenecks, dyed them the appropriate color, which, you know, you, you just go to, like, Michael's and you buy a pack of fabric dye, put it in a big tub and, you know, dye. Uh, so, like, Stoffel's had green for some – or Stoffel's had gray, actually, for science. Uh, Dr. Lupia had light green for medical. I had yellow for engineering. So – and then we had to sew the collars so that we'd stuff them in, uh, with uh, – the hell's it called? Polyfill. The same thing you put in pillows hmm. to, to make it that ribbed look. So everyone was responsible. Michelle did all the, the sewing for the undershirts and s- stuffing them for people. Pretty much everyone was responsible. Okay, you need a uniform. Hassle kind of like this. Go get it. Then Ed bought the pattern for the enlisted uniform, the jumpsuit that um, Enigma wears. And then Trish and Michelle sewed that together themselves. And then in a touch of home, Ed, because, you know, you think I'm obsessed with this stuff. Uh, <laughs> he bought the away away jacket, the landing party jacket that you see in Star Trek 2. Mm-hmm. And that's what Stoffel's wears. And then for him, uh, what the captain wears in that is Kirk's jacket from Star Trek 5, I think. Yeah, because uh, – and it's, it's still – a monster maroon, but it's a more casual look to it. Like it's got a V neck on it. So it, because there is a spread of uniforms out there and we wanted to show, yeah, we do. It's not just one thing. You know, we have enlisted, we have officers, we have away jackets. We had one, (laughs) away jacket, (laughs) but it, it pretty much worked out. And then the pants were all just black pants that we, customized with uh, a ribbon and the the line it's it's a black ribbon with a department color down the center of it so like mine had a, a yellow stripe michelle's had a green stripe and the the captain had a red stripe because that's what command had so that's also what he had after filming <laughs> so it was yeah yes i'm ignoring that <laughs> So it was all just everyone more or less responsible for themselves. And then if we needed something built, we would do it like in, at the end of upgrade and then through all the touch of home, the helm console you see is physically there. We built a helm console and that was twofold. One, so you could actually touch what what you were trying to do, which makes it more believable. And also, it was something we could take to conventions and things. Is hey, look at what we do. You know, we even build our own console. And Danny had printed out uh, the the buttons and everything that we then taped to the back of plexiglass so that when you put a light behind them, you would actually see it looks like uh, an L-Cars console from the Star Trek Six and beyond. All right. Well, since uh, since we pretty much do the uh, highs, lows, and what this on this, um, you know, it seems a little a little harsh to ask you, but um, you know, are there any moments that you're most proud of? I guess uh, moments. I wanna, you know, well, or, or anything from it that you're like really, you know, well, you've talked up about everything on it, but <laughs> you know. The, well, really, what I'm most proud of is the the entire episode of A Touch of Home, because that one was it was my idea behind that. And Danny and I pretty much wrote the script for it. And then I directed it and I did the editing. So it, it's one of those things that uh, that's like out of all of it for me, that's the high point, because it's what I wanted to do. And it's 
that's also the one where we got decent sound and we had good lighting and it, everything just came together. And, you know, my so my blood, sweat and tears, I think all three literally are on that one. <laughs> so, so you're not most proud of an editing assistant? <laughs> he was more annoying than anything. <laughs> well, that there are a couple in jokes in there. Like you'll notice at the in the end of the credits in Upgrade, it says no doomsday machines were harmed in the making of this film. Mm-hmm. No, we harmed it the last episode. We didn't harm any this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the the editor's assistant was if you actually read the credits was for Hendrix. Well, that was my 125 pound German Shepherd who said, I am going to sit on you anytime you're at the computer. (laughs) (laughs) So I figured, okay, he's at my feet, or most of the time he's actually nosing my arm on trying to do stuff. So, okay, you're the assistant. And I I don't remember, I haven't haven't gotten through the end of uh, Touch of Home yet, so I think there's something in the credits for that. And I'm going to actually go to the page and I'm going to fast forward real quick just because let me see here. Uh, yeah, because if, if you see that. Oh, that's right. Trish helped me with that screenplay uh, touch of home because that was the first one where we specifically had an A plot and a B plot. So that was that was the fun, fun part of that. But the uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple in jokes that we had. In the whole, uh, all of them. Oh, yeah. The very end of A Touch of Home, it says, only one engineer was harmed in the making of this episode. <laughs> and that would be me slicing my leg up. <laughs> ah. uh, if, if you're okay with a little bit of gore, I can tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what we were doing is, in the first step, <clears throat> in A Touch of Home, or in um, a return to doomsday, we filmed in Danny's one car garage and you can tell because there's an echo in upgrade. We filmed mainly in out, uh, Michelle and I, uh, we had a two car garage in a townhouse at the time and it was a little more room to work with, but there's still an echo and the sound on that one was all that great. So we figured, okay, let's try this in actually in inside not not in a garage in somewhere with some type of sound absorption so our friend lou who is one of the orion um pirates in a touch of home he said well you know, i live alone i've got this room downstairs that i'm just using for storage we can paint half of that blue and that way you don't have to worry about the the cloth or anything bunching up so lou danny ed and i were over there and we were painting, we painted half the wall. We painted half the ceiling just so we can do the, uh, the camera pointing up and still key out and everything. So we painted all that blue. And then Lou said, okay, uh, you guys clean up in here. I'm going to go start some burgers outside. Cause it was, it was, I think September or it was, it was getting a little on the cooler side, but you can still be outside and do stuff. And we had, there was a sliding glass door in this room that went out to a patio. So the because we were painting, the door was open the whole day and all this. So Ed and I are in and we're cleaning out brushes and we're almost done. And Lou said, hey, guys, the burgers are ready. So Ed, Ed, you got this? Yeah, I got it. Go ahead. So I go out and I just go to walk outside and someone had closed the door. So my left knee hit the glass and shattered. So I sliced up my left leg, uh, my left sh- Shin, I have, let me actually look at it here. Uh, it's about a four-inch scar right now. <laughs> yeah, I had a piece of glass basically fillet me. Uh, another one came down and cut the, right above my knee. I had a cut on my forehead, which Michelle now refers to as my Harry Potter scar. <laughs> and so I basically clamped my hands over my leg to keep everything together. <laughs> and I fell backwards and... The, the entire time I'm telling them what to do. Like, okay, Lou, call 911. Uh, Danny, go call Michelle, let her know what happened. Ed, get me some towels or something. Oh, and by the way, I think I'm going into shock. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, uh, I'm not all that great with blood, but if I'm doing something like that, like 
telling, hey, guys, this is what happened. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. go, go do this now. I'm also an Eagle Scout, so I have some kind of idea of what to do. So ambulance gets there. They take me away. <laughs> I had to get you know, some like 70 stitches inside and out to sew my leg up. And this was this was all in preparation for making that episode. So it was, yeah, uh, I'm the only engineer that was injured in the making of the episode. Oh, so you suffered for your craft. Yes, I <laughs> suffered for my stupidity, really. <laughs> well, we all, we all do that. <laughs> like, you know, that's kind of how I'm down in the basement. <laughs> figure. <clears throat> all right. Well, since somebody's got to rain on this parade, I will kind of focus on some lows and what does okay my lows we've already talked about it it's the the audio mm-hmm. you know it, it's not the greatest except in that third episode yeah well the third episode we actually got lou had a soundboard and we got three different mics that we put on stands and he was able to mix it in the soundboard so it was that the audio on that episode Terrific. The other two, it was all the camera microphone. Not all that great. <laughs> yeah, but it's still watchable. Mm. Now, as for my what the, my what the is how much I actually enjoyed watching these. <laughs> Shocking, because, isn't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I've watched more than my fair share of Star Trek fanfic, and so many of them just feel like another cookie cutter plot straight out of the episode. Somebody just changed a few lines here or there. They always want to portray somebody from the show, connect it straight back to the original, you know, anything like that. This was a breath of fresh air. This was, like you said, original characters in the same universe, but not crossing paths with Kirk and Spock every other, you know, five minutes. None of this, oh, you know, well, we just so happened to encounter the Borg, but we didn't report it, or anything like that. I, I enjoyed every bit of it, and it left me wanting more. It really did. Well, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, shame on you. Shame on you for leaving me hanging. <laughs> yeah, that's, but like I said, you know, life got in the way. If if we could ever get the post-production stuff done for Street Fight, there might be another episode coming out, but I seriously doubt that, seeing as how it's... What, 13 years later now? Yeah, but who knows? I mean, you know, all those 80s and 90s franchises are getting sequels now. Yeah, well, we, we'll we see. It, Tales of the Seven Fleet might come back. It just might not be as in video form. So we'll, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> ah, all right, well, you'll definitely have to keep everybody posted. Yeah, if, if there are any developments, I will make sure to let you and everyone listening know. Alrighty, well, I think I have said just about everything that I needed to say, which wasn't much at all. <laughs> I warned you before we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I already told you you were you were the inside man. You you were going to run with it. <laughs> so, do you have anything else to add before we just kind of close it up? Uh, no, I I would appreciate if anyone does give these a look, if they could just let me know either on Facebook or Twitter that they did watch it and what they thought of it, even if it's negative. I, I'm more than happy to, to hear any feedback. I just, I hope whoever uh, listened to this already watched the episodes, like we said, spoilers. Uh, but I would just, I would like to, to know, did you enjoy it? Do you have any really major issues with it? You know, what do you think for something that's way, way too old right now? <laughs> because and the older this gets, the older I get. And I don't like that. <laughs> so we're all going to get old. In fact, I think I'm growing old down here. But mm. so, Gene, uh, let everybody know where else they can find you online. Well, at the moment, I'm not doing a whole lot because I just did a big move from, you know, from the northeast to the southeast. So uh, right now I'm doing guest spots, but the majority of my shows can be heard on the Two True Freaks Network, where I, I've done the Hammer Podcast, which is my solo show. Uh, you can find a couple episodes on that about Star Trek the Motion Picture for some reason. Uh, there's the Quantum Cast, which I do with my good buddy Adam Worth, all about the protector of the universe, the greatest Marvel character ever, Quasar. Yes, you heard me right. I said the greatest Marvel character ever. Uh, then there's Anime Freaks, which 
I do with Dr. Bill Robinson. We did the entire first season of Star Blazers and we with a couple movies involved too. And we started on Attack on Titan and Record of Lotus War. But again, life got in the way and we really haven't gotten back to it. If you want to just read and not hear my annoying voice anymore, you can go to thehammerstrikes.com. Currently, I am on hiatus from that as well, uh, doing blog posts, but there were a lot of posts previous that you can read up on real uh, random stuff. It's just whatever popped into my head. Probably the, the most current thing I do right now is the Class 1000 Marvel Superheroes Phase Rip Live Action Role Playing Podcast. The longest podcast name you'll ever hear. And <laughs> uh, that's you can find at uh, Podbean. Uh, also has Twitter and Facebook accounts and that's Adam, myself and a bunch of our friends playing the old, uh, TSR Marvel superheroes game. And there will be more episodes coming out. We, we finished the entire module that we were running through. I just have to sit down and edit them and put them out, but I believe there are eight episodes out now and there should be more coming very soon. Okay. And you're on Facebook and Twitter as well. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook under Gene Hendricks. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Hammer underscore Strikes. I also run the Two True Freaks Twitter account and a couple of, a couple other ones out there. Uh, so just tag me in, in whatever post you want to do about watching this. Uh, tell me how much you hate it, how much you love it, how indifferent you are to it. I just want to know people are out there watching. All right, that sounds good to me. Uh so, Gene, is there any chance uh, you can work a little bit of your Hollywood magic and get me out of this basement? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem. Just get your communicator out, and we can beam right out of here. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm sure I got one around here somewhere. Give me just a, a second. All right. Well, let, let me uh, let me beam out, and then I'll, I'll make sure that they're ready to take you when you find the communicator. Just uh, here's the frequency to call. I'll, I'll be listening for you. All right? Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Justice, one to beam up. He knows I don't have any sort of communicator. <sighs> oh, well, that, that still gives me time to put in a promo and uh, go over some listener feedback. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff. But what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Something like Thor or Captain America? Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? Hey, everybody. Thanks for sticking with me. Uh, last episode, which was our second episode, of course, uh, covering X-Men District X with Sean Ross, got likes, shares, retweets, all that fun stuff from Green Lantern HG, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, no, I can't sing it like Christados. Secret Wars and Beyond, that's Sean himself. Christados, Dr. G, Warlord Worlds, Professor Frenzy, Delvin the Dark Web Williams, Longbox of Darkness, Trekker Talk, Liz Ann Oswald, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sale Artist, Paul Hicks, Mike Rockstansky, Billy Delicious, Tim Price, Conan the Librarian at Conan Vegas, that's awesome, Gene Hendricks, this episode's guest, Rick Heineken, Hal Jordan, Angelica Fetty Wolf, Aaron Head Moss, Al Sedano, Relatively Geeky, Into the Weird, Radioactive Dinosaur, Laurel, that's Mountain Flower One, and Iowa's Joe Crawford. Appreciate all that internet love, everyone. Helps get the show noticed. I'm truly touched. Speaking of being touched, we got some feedback, folks. That's right, everybody's out there loving this show. I know I am, anyway. So, on Twitter, 
Green Lantern HG rattled off something in Italian that I don't even know if I want to translate. But he also said, another great episode, another great guest. It was a good movie. I could have gone without the dream scene, though. Felt too unnecessary to me, but still very enjoyable. I gotta agree with the HG, that dream scene was a bit much. Unpacking the horror of Power Pack. Oh, you gotta love those October name changes. I'm not sure if that's Jeff or Rick responding, but one of those two said, Good job, you guys had me laughing this morning. Well, Jeff and or Rick, that is exactly what Sean and I intended. Well, not necessarily intended, but it's what we're good at, apparently. This episode's guest, Gene Hendricks, decided to write in and said, well, he kind of quoted, anyway, our... He's the writer-director-producer, so he's most likely a scumbag approach to (laughs) our Wolverine from X-Men District X. And he kind of looked at the credits for his own Tales of the Seventh Fleet and just went, um, yeah. Oh, don't worry, Gene. We're not going to pick on you. I won't. Sean might. Anyway, anyway. And Into the Weird, Herman Lowe decided to say... Loving this episode, Sean and Clinton mixed together make a damn fine brew. Oh wait, no coffee references. This is Fan Film Fridays. Well, we do appreciate it. Heck, I'll agree. Sean and I do make a damn fine brew because we both love coffee. Or I do anyway. I don't know about Sean. But anyway, that seems to be it for the feedback. As usual though, you can email me at fanfilmfridays at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on the Longbox Crusade website, which is longboxcrusade.com. You can send tweets to me at Fridays underscore fan. So, that pretty much wraps it up. And I'm still pretty much stuck in this basement. But that's okay, because next time, there will be another fan film and another guest who will hopefully get me out of here. So, until next time, stay tuned for another Fan Film Fridays. Today you can take your telephone, your 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 cell phone. You can make a movie on that. And if it's a really cool movie that's funny and it's dramatic or whatever, you can post it on YouTube. If you want to make films and you want to tell stories, you can do it. After all, all art is experience. But if you're obsessed with film and you love to tell stories and you love working in that medium, uh, then uh, that will give you the strength to be persistent to make it happen.